Hello and welcome to David's Politics Show. More than 100 days have passed since Putin's full-scale invasion of Ukraine began in late February. The war has already had many twists and turns. After a shocking and bloody defeat in what some are already beginning to call the Battle of Kiev, the Russian army is now making slow and grinding progress in the Donbass, especially in Luhansk Oblast. So where do we stand at this point in the war, militarily and politically? What are the West's options at this point? And what should be its policy goals, vis-à-vis both Russia and Ukraine? To discuss all this and more, I'm delighted to welcome back to the podcast the noted Russia and Ukraine expert, Dr. Andreas Umland. Dr. Umland is an analyst at the Stockholm Center for Eastern European Studies at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Dr. Umland, it's a pleasure to have you back on the podcast. Welcome. It's a pleasure to be back. Thanks for having me, David. So let me start things off by, by asking you about First of all, the military situation on the ground. I want to definitely get to the politics a little bit later, but let's just set the stage um, also for, for our listeners. Uh, obviously, since we last spoke, uh, a lot has happened, and the Russians are now focused on, on the east and especially around Severodonetsk. What is your sense of where we are right now? Obviously, the, 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 there have been reports that the Russians have been making progress there, um, but I've also read in the, in the updates of the, the Institute of the Study of War, which I think gives some of the best updates on the kind of day-to-day situation, they argued recently that, that um, actually the Ukrainians were being quite smart in not committing too many of their troops to the, to the battle of Severodonetsk itself. Um, and they were using them to you know, push some counteroffensives in, in other parts of the, of the front, also in Kherson. So um, what's your sense of, of where we stand in terms of the military situation? I guess in military terms, uh, Ukraine is not doing that bad, um, considering that uh, there's no immediate threat now anymore for Kiev, and even Kharkiv seems to be much more safe than um, a month ago. Now we have the situation in in the Donbass and uh, the possible fall of Severodonetsk. Um, I've been to Severodonetsk three years ago. Um, it has been the sort of provisional um, capital of the Luhansk Oblast um, since 2014, when uh, Luhansk itself, the uh, capital of the Luhansk region, was um, occupied. Um, and it it is a, symbolically important, uh, but I don't think strategically it is particularly important for Ukraine, whether it has Severodonetsk or not. And... Uh, it may be symbolically for both sides um, important uh, for both Russia, uh, which wants to at least occupy <clears throat> the entire territories of the uh, Luhansk and Donetsk uh, oblasts, and also, of course, uh, for Ukraine. But um, this is not really um, a crucial um, uh, issue, although the the fighting is is heavy and um, has now also turned very much into an art- artillery exchange. I mm-hmm. I have an acquaintance on the front line, and what this acquaintance is saying that the fighters are actually not getting to to fight because it's all about uh, artillery. Yeah, 
and that's why Ukraine is now also asking so much for um, for heavy artillery um, uh, installations from the West. Right, right, and these ML, MLR, MLRS systems, right? It's hard to pronounce that word. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's interesting. As an aside, it it's um, it's starting to remind me more and more of the First World War, right? <laughs> the First World War also began as a war of movement, uh, uh, certainly in, on in, on the Western Front, and then already within you know three four months became essentially an attritional yes an attritional war around trenches and artillery exchanges etc cetera, etc cetera. um let me ask you now to uh, let's turn to the let's turn to the po to, to the politics um there seems to have been a bit of a shift uh, it seems to me in um some of the messages that are coming from certain capitals in europe mostly in western europe in terms of how far we want to go in supporting Ukraine in terms of um, how much this is costing, inflation, uh, energy prices, food prices, and so on and so forth. There was also this, the recent uh, statement by Kissinger uh, at Davos. I personally found it a reckless thing to say. Yes. Just for the listeners, he, he basically said that Ukraine should make territorial concessions to, to, to bring peace closer. Whether that is true or not, I just think that, you know, saying something like that in public um, is an irresponsible thing to say. But so let me ask you, first of all, what you think about that and and whether whether you share the sense of mind that we're starting to see fatigue creeping in. In terms of the uh, rhetoric and also in terms of the public discussion and uh in view of what Kissinger said, yes, um, there is now this sort of more principal uh, discussion about what uh, what what is the the exit out of the situation, how the West should behave, and what Kissinger has said is, insofar I agree, um, dangerous to to say because. Um, these sort of suggestions, they are hits uh, on the nuclear non-proliferation regime. Um, the uh, most, most scandalous, arguably, um, aspect of this entire war is perhaps that uh, Russia is not just possessing um, nuclear weapons and is threatening um, Ukraine and the West with them, but that Russia is actually officially allowed to have nuclear weapons. Well, Ukraine not only does not have nuclear weapons, but Ukraine is forbidden by, by the treaty on the non-proliferation of nuclear weapons to possess um, such such weapons. And even more odd, um, Ukraine once had nuclear weapons, um, mm -hmm. uh, the, the third largest arsenal, and then agreed to give them away. There was then the famous Budapest Memorandum. And if now... The U.S. would uh, also uh, basically um, violate the Budapest Memorandum and the logic of the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Um, uh, these are very important documents for the entire security of uh, not just Europe but uh, mankind. Then um, this would have could have grave uh, consequences uh, for um, uh, for the future of non-proliferation because many politicians and um, experts and diplomats they will be looking at that and they will be saying themselves well we don't want to end up as um, in the situation of ukraine and perhaps mm -hmm. some may even say we want to be in the situation of russia in which we can extend our theory uh, our our territory 
with the help of um, nuclear weapons. So um, that against this background, especially American commentators, and Kissinger is not the only one, of course, should be very careful to to suggest that. Um, and and the the important thing here about America and also about uh, Brits and uh, and French people and Chinese is that these are um, representatives of the countries that are explicitly exempted from the non-proliferation regime and that uh, are explicitly allowed to have nuclear weapons. And these countries should be the last ones to um, suggest to non-nuclear weapon states like Ukraine to give away their territory, territories, because that um, makes the um, whole treaty um, senseless and then uh, can have grave consequences for world security. Absolutely, and 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 the the terrible lesson that this war has already taught everyone, right, is that nuclear weapons give you this this um, this ability to wage war on a neighbor, right, and not risk ultimately the a kind of counter invasion. That's that, that's that's off the table, and it, it's always even though, of course, nuclear weapons have have not been used. Thankfully, they're always lurking in the background. There, they they were there. I remember us talking about it. You know, even a couple of months ago when Putin made these kind of vague allusions to you know the fact that uh, they have this ability to to um destroy everyone else which is true um and and the other thing that you know is still still also there in the background is that presumably he could at some point formally declare that whatever territory whatever part of ukraine he's he's conquered is now as far as he's concerned russian territory and therefore the russian nuclear deterrent extends to that territory right Yes, and that would and that would presumably put it off limits for for eternity. Yes, yeah, and that uh, again that may then teach um, uh, politicians and diplomats and in entire different parts of the world a lesson, uh, uh, a very dangerous lesson here. Of course, I think also um, this has a consequences. This sort of consideration of the future of the non-proliferation regime should have also consequences for the now popular discussion about whether Russia should be defeated in this war. And I think if you care about non-proliferation, you would uh, argue that, yes, Russia should not only be defeated uh, for moral reasons or for uh, geopolitical reasons or for historical reasons, but also for security-related uh, reasons, in that um, such a defeat would then signal to everybody in the world, well, that even if you have nuclear weapons and if you um, violate um, uh, the borders of your um, of your neighboring country as a nuclear weapon state, then you will be punished for that. Um, mm -hmm. And this punishment uh, would be also as a as a colleague um, of mine, Sergei Rachenko had, has recently argued in, a, in an article in the Spectator, would be also good for Russia because it would end the Russian imperial uh, dream, but it would also be good for the world because it would uh, reinforce the logic of the non-proliferation regime. Yes. So this raises, uh, I think, uh, what is absolutely the, the, the central question, which is what does it mean to defeat Russia? Right. What does what does defeat entail? Um, again, we're starting to see or, or to, to hear noises being made, especially in, in, in Western Europe, 
and in, in, in Austria, which I guess is technically Central Europe, um, that, you know, we can't go too far. I heard Macron, you know, the other day saying, you know, we can't humiliate Putin. Um, again, there, there, there's some truth to that, but whether, whether, you know, saying so in public is, 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 is particularly smart is, is I think, uh, somewhat questionable. But um, what do you think should the, the EU's policy be? Uh, at this point, let's let's leave aside the the, the U.S. for for one second. Um, we've had this ban on on the oil and also on the insurance uh, for for the ships trading the oil. That's one thing. But what should what do you think the the EU should should do at this point um, in terms of also the military support? Well, if, um, to to start with the sanctions, uh, with this six sanctions package, there is now potentially at least uh, a lot of uh, uh, range uh, of action already. Um, that just the uh, the um, insurance uh, of the oil export that you just mentioned is actually one of the crucial issues. Uh, Mm-hmm. If the EU can really ensure that um, Russia cannot easily uh, replace uh, the current insurances or the rec- the uh, insurances that it has recently used to ensure its um, oil exports, that would have grave consequences uh, for uh, Russia because the oil export is important, and if the EU does not Im- uh, import that anymore. Then Russia will will look for other uh, clients, and, and there are of course uh, lots of other clients and uh, clients with lots of appetite for oil. But if it cannot transport the oil there, then um, then this could really hit the Russian budget uh, uh, rather hard. Mm-hmm. So that is one of the instruments. There's also the um, instrument here of the uh, import sanctions. That means those. Uh, sanctions that regard the Russian import of uh, Western technologies um, that uh, can have a lot of effect. So um, simply enforcing the current uh, sanctions that are in place uh, will actually have already a substantial effect. And then there is the issue with the gas uh, import from Russia uh, by the EU. So this will be hopefully a subject for uh, for the next sanctions round. And then uh, one could also imagine so, so-called secondary sanctions. Uh, that means not only sanctions of Russian uh, companies, but also of select non-Russian companies that are um, promoting Russian uh, foreign economic interests in crucial ways and that uh, could at least be threatened with, with sanctions so as to um, make them refrain from such uh, cooperation. So that is the um, the economic side of it, and the other side is, of course, the um, support f- for Ukraine and um, here um, the delivery of these um, weapons, the training of the uh, soldiers to use these weapons is important, and uh, it should be th- those weapons that U- Ukraine is requesting. Um, mm-hmm. And um, there's now this discussion with the. Um, uh, with these uh, rocket and missile systems and long-range artillery, how um, how far these should be reaching, and um, yeah. you know, and what exact kind should be li- delivered? I think um, the West should deliver everything the Ukrainians are asking for. Exactly, uh, because um, the um, assumption here is often that then uh, Ukraine would sort of 
um, improperly or or unwisely use uh, these weapons. But um, for instance, I don't know uh, what here the assumptions could be. Uh, I don't know have a sort of terror attack on a on a Russian city, similar to the many terror attacks on Ukrainian cities from the Russian side that we have seen. But as you mentioned rightly, then the um, uh, Russian nuclear doctrine would kick in. So, and and the and the Ukrainians know this, of, of course. Uh, so they yeah. will not uh, do these sort of terror attacks. They will use the um, the weapons they get for uh, for the uh, for the battle on Ukrainian soil. And um, then, of course, there is the question: Then, what is Ukrainian soil and what not? And when does the at atomic doc doctrine of Russia kick in? Currently, uh, Russia sees only um, Crimea as belonging to its um, national territory, mm -hmm. um, um, as, which is in fact a part of, of Ukraine's territory. So, <clears throat> so that would be um, a contentious issue. But the Ukrainians know, of course, these risks, and they would uh, use this uh, these weapons responsibly. There are also, um, for the for the time being, there are so many targets for. Ukraine on Ukrainian soil that exactly. uh, would be it would be illogical to use these weapons to target en masse um, certain uh, targets uh, on Russian soil. So, so everybody, um, everything should be delivered um, and in substantive uh, amounts. I mean, I also see, but you know, when I when I'm here in Germany, you know, we have an army, and you wonder whether. All of this military technology that we have here in Germany or in other West European states is ever going to be used. You know, it has been mm. built at one point, and then it will be decommissioned at a certain point, and it will never actually go into action. Right. And um, so, why not give it to the Ukrainians who actually need this stuff? Whereas in, in Western Europe, we don't really need that much of protection. We are here surrounded. Um, by friendly states, what do we need all these tanks and 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 uh, horbitzes and 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 rocket systems and so on? Right. That 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 was the that, that was basically the argument for not funding the military in the first place. Right. That we we don't we don't need all these tanks. The Cold That's War a good ended. Point. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so so if you don't uh, need them like you said if you don't need them then might yeah. as well give them to someone who certainly does need them right now. Yeah. And I think that's also one of the explanations uh, that the East Europeans are giving so eagerly their weapons to to Ukraine because they know it's basically for them um it's a zero sum uh, game in a way because the um um the 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 Russian weapons and the Russian army that will be destroyed by the um by the Ukrainians with these weapons, let's say from Estonia, mm -hmm. are exactly those parts of the army and of uh, of the Russian military technology that are not going to threaten Estonia anymore. Of course. Uh, yeah. So for them, it makes perfect sense to send the, their weapons to to Ukraine because for them, the only security risk is Russia, and the more Ukraine weakens Russia uh, militarily the better for the security of these East European countries. So it's in their own interest to do that. And that's why they're doing it so eagerly. And it should be, of course, much more even in the interest and it should be much easier for the um, uh, geopolitically safe West European countries to uh, to give Ukraine um, uh, their weaponry. Right, right. Which so far, uh, especially France and Germany, have given scandalously little 
but we'll 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 come to that in in just a second. Actually, be, be, before I move to my my next point, just about the this question about you know the exact range of the M MLRS systems that we should give them, etc. I mean, that's such a in a way, it's just such a laughable point because, as you said, you know, there is such a plethora of options of things to to bomb in Ukraine, and you know, artillery exchanges require insane amounts of ammunition. So the idea that the Ukrainians would waste precious ammunition, especially expensive artillery uh, ammunition, on on bombing some some target in Russia, which has zero you know strategic value whatsoever, is is kind of silly. But um, let me ask you this: Should should the EU start to publicly talk about EU accession for Ukraine at some point down the road? Well, this is coming up this month. The um, first, the European Commission will have to say its opinion, and then we're going to have a summit, as far as I remember, in late June, where this will be um, decided. And um, as far as I can see now, the main question is whether, um, or at least that's, I hope at least, that this is the only question remaining, is whether Ukraine and also Georgia and Moldova will become candidates uh, for accession to the EU or so-called potential candidates for the accession to the EU, which would, would also be a membership perspective, but would, would, would not yet immediately start negotiations um, for the preparation of membership. And these negotiations also, they last for a long time. But um, Kosovo and Bosnia-Herzegovina are, can, are currently potential candidates, whereas um, the other Western Balkan countries that have not yet entered um, the EU, as well as Turkey, are candidates mm -hmm. for EU um, accession. And so this will be, or I hope this is now the discussion, and that uh, there will be not, again, some sort of strange formulation like Ukraine belongs to our European family, whatever that is. That was the formulation of the of the last European Council statement. I hope they will now at least give them the potential candidate um, status and thereby a membership perspective and perhaps even the candidate status that is now um, i think on the uh, on the agenda mm -hmm. which is uh, of course always a, a difficult issue because as far as i understand each of the 27 member countries has a veto basically on these uh, formulations so Mm -hmm. um, I hope everybody will be on board to at least provide the potential candidate uh, status um, and then make these three countries um, equal to at least such such states as Kosovo and Bosnia-Herzegovina. So, um, um, and e but even this potential candidate status, I think, um, is actually um, significant because um, it upgrades... Um, Ukraine and hopefully also uh, Georgia and Moldova, um, it, it brings them basically, or it starts bringing them out of this uh, geopolitical gray zone in Eastern Europe. Um, uh, uh, I mean, they, they would be only come out of this geopolitical gray zone when they enter the European Union and NATO, um, at least in the case of uh, Georgia and Ukraine. Um, Moldova does not have a, a, a membership perspective from NATO and does not actually aspire so far for NATO membership. So they will only be fully embedded internationally once they've entered these two organizations, or at least one of them. 
But if they now get a, a membership perspective from the EU, that will already indicate where the train is going. So, um, so this signal now will be actually very important uh, this um, this June, and I think it will be also psychologically uh, for these uh, nations important when they can say, you know, our future is the European Union. Even and you know, like adult people, to, people today, they may maybe. They could say, tell themselves, well, maybe I'm not going to live to the point when we actually enter the European Union, but my, my children and grandchildren will be living in the European Union. So right. that will be an enormous lift, up, upliftingly uh, message and will also be, of course, a very important uh, message for the Kremlin and even, I would say, for ordinary Russians, because it will mm -hmm. um, tell these, uh, tell the Russians that these are important uh, nations of Europe and they are not less worth than uh, the French and uh, the Swedes and the Italians and they are fully part of the European project and they are fully European and they will one day be become full members of the European Union. So right. um, so this is now a very important um, actually a decision that uh, is, is going to be made apparently this month already. And maybe... Um, you know, signaling, as you said, the, this, this willingness to extend, as it were, the concept of Europe um, farther and farther east would also contribute to undermining this whole notion of a Rus Ruski Mir, right, of, of the idea that, that Russia is somehow not really European. It's kind of partly European, but partly something separate and different and, and, and better, right? Because if, if all of the what used to be called in the 19th century the Slavic countries, right, are in within are in the EU. Then, as you said, maybe you know Russians, uh, ordinary Russians, start asking themselves, well, why why are we why, why are we so different, right? Why, why do we have to be so um, so separate? Maybe one day we too could be part of the EU in a different constellation, obviously. Yes, uh, indeed. I think there is also this positive aspect to it that uh, Belarusians and Russians. Once they see that Ukrainians uh, have a path um, to full membership uh, to the EU, even if they are not yet full members, then they will start thinking, um, you know, what what their future could be, and uh, and perhaps then uh, once we have regime changes in these two countries, we may see um, a discussion actually about uh, whether it really makes sense to uh, rebuild the Soviet. Soviet Union, or whether um, the Belarusians and Russians shouldn't better follow the Ukrainians, the Moldovans, and the Georgians, and also try to get association agreements, a visa-free regime, perhaps then also a potential candidate status, and then the candidacy, and maybe also in some distant future, um, a full membership. Mm -hmm. Let me let me ask you as we come towards the the close of our discussion let me ask you about germany uh, where you are uh, at the moment uh, i remember when we last spoke it was shortly after uh chancellor schultz's statement in the bundestag about these extra 100 billion which have been uh recently approved i think it was the other day in parliament uh apparently a good chunk of that will go towards buying the, the f-35s and some some transport aircraft um, but in any case, there, there's certainly, there are enough things to spend the money on, right? Because Germany's army, armed forces in general, not just the army, the, even the Navy uh, and the Air Force are in a, in a pretty dire state. So there's, there's plenty of things to, to spend the money on. On the other hand, 
as I said uh, a little while ago, Germany has has not uh, exactly excelled in the uh, arms shipment department. Uh, I think I read in in the FT the other day that as a percentage of um, GDP, the the countries of um, Eastern Europe, Poland, Slovakia, I think some of also some of the uh, Baltic countries have have spent, as it were, or have gifted much much more than than Germany and even and even France. So in that sense, are we starting to see again Germany reverting to the mean, reverting to its old ways of um, looking for a way out, squirming to find a way to not have to pay the bill, let others pay the bill, and while we uh, come to some sort of unspoken arrangement uh, with Moscow? Um, yes, it looks uh, like that. But uh, when I'm asked uh, similar questions uh, by Ukrainian journalists, I usually defend Germany in the sense that I'm trying to explain that this sort of policy and this sort of uh, engagement is something new for Germany. So our traditional fields of foreign policy are diplomacy, cultural exchange, infrastructure projects, economic investment, science cooperation. That is what we do well, what we've been doing for dec decades, where we have institutions, algorithms, uh, mechanisms. That's what we are used to do. And now suddenly we are in this geopolitical conflict and uh, we are asked to deliver heavy weapons, uh, you know, offensive weapons. And we have made the decisions to do so. And we have actually delivered uh, weapons to Ukraine, so far only uh, smaller weapons and defensive weapons. Um, but we have already made also a decision concerning heavy weapons. So um, that these things have not yet appeared in Ukraine and have not yet had an, an impact um, has, uh, I would like to believe, still something or mainly something to do with our inexperience with that rather than mm -hmm. with some sort of doctrinal um, principle issue that we don't really want to defend uh, the independence of uh, and, and the territorial integrity and the international law in general um, um, and, um, and Ukraine in particular. Um, I still believe that this sort of inexperience with the situation is is behind that, and also our own problems with our own army, um, and that and there were some announcement that we were going to deliver something, and then they were taken sort of back, and now mm -hmm. there there are some uh, some artillery installations that are being prepared for transfer now Scholz has announced that um, there could be um, modern anti-aircraft systems that may be delivered to to Ukraine that would be um, actually uh, I would say a game changer and has been very positively already, already commented on by the Ukrainian ambassador in in Germany Andrei Melnik who is otherwise rather critical of the um, of the government so um, I, I I hope that this is uh, the main reason. Uh, I cannot know what you know what what's happening there in the in the various ministries and in the parties, but um, at least in you know to Ukrainian journalists, I usually give this explanation um, because, of course, from if you look at it from the outside, it looks odd that as um, powerful a country as Germany has so far delivered so few um, weapons to um, to Ukraine 
Mm-hmm. Um, I guess there is also some justification for the idea that perhaps German tanks um, should not be, at least not those delivered by Germany, um, they're fighting against the Russian army because it would sort of feed into the Russian um, propaganda line that this is basically a continuation of World War II mm-hmm. um, in Ukraine now. So I, I sort of understand this partly, but um, this argument, but still I think the Germans can can deliver a lot of stuff um, that the Ukrainians need. It does not have to be uh, battle tanks. Um, uh, there's uh, lots of other uh, important, also heavy weapons that uh, Ukraine um, needs, and where Germany should should be um, speeding up its support. Yeah, the the irony is that um, German weapons are actually pretty good, right? I mean, German tanks are very good. German artillery is very good. They don't they don't have much of it, and what they have what they have is kind of in total disrepair, most of it. But actually, the the you know German companies also sell sell weapons. Uh, all over the world, and then people buy the stuff because it's very good. So, and it looks now as if um, actually German battle tanks will get to Ukraine from Spain. Uh, the right, there has yes. been this announcement that Leopard One tanks, which are not very not entirely modern, but apparently still uh, relatively good, may may mm-hmm. go to Ukraine. And uh, well, that, I think that that would be for. For Germany, still less problematic than uh, delivering their own directly, tanks directly yeah. um, to the front line, um, because then it would be sort of Spanish responsibility for these German weapons there. Right. So, um, yeah, hopefully um, the government will now seek and find uh, ways to actually uh, deliver important stuff to to Ukraine. Okay, well, I think that's that's a that's a good hopeful note to to end things on for the moment. Um, it's always a pleasure to talk to you to to get a, a feel about the where, where this war is headed. It's such a dramatic moment, I think. Yes. Um, so, my guest today has been uh, Dr. Andreas Umland. Interested listeners can find a list of his publications on the website of the Swedish Institute of International Affairs, and of course, he is also on Twitter. You can find him there at Umland Andreas. Dr. Umland, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, David, for having me. It was, um, again, a, a rather interesting conversation. Thanks for tuning in to David's Politics Show. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, do consider subscribing and leaving a rating on whichever platform you use to listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks very much indeed. And until next time, so long.